you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And as you're doing that, say, hey kids, if you are in here today, uh, there, there should be a few of you in here at least. So if you would, I, I'm going to read a story to you guys. So I'd love it if y'all come in and sit up here with me while I, I read this story. Uh, as y'all are making your way here, we've, we've done this uh, before, and uh, parents, grandparents, this is just a reminder, this is called the Biggest Story Bible Storybook, and uh, we, have, we have copies of it available if you're interested in getting one of these. Uh, we've done it with our family, uh, at least our youngest has walked through this, and so uh, I'm excited today to get to read some of this to you, okay? Is everybody ready? I, I like it. I yell, it's ready. Okay. It says this. If you and your family, a really, really big family, were slaves for 400 years, how would you expect to get free? Maybe a law could be passed outlawing slavery, or maybe a new president could be elected, or maybe you could dig a super long tunnel and disappear to a new country with over four centuries to think and pray about it, I bet the Israelites had dreamed of a thousand different ways to freedom. And yet, they probably never imagined what God had planned for their deliverance. They had no idea that Moses, that man who had run away from Egypt 40 years earlier, would be God's chosen man to confront Pharaoh they had no idea they would have to make bricks without straw. They had no idea that they could, would give Moses powerful signs to impress Pharaoh and that Pharaoh wouldn't be impressed at all. They had no idea that everything was going to get worse before ever, anything started to get better. But that's how God usually works. Trouble before triumph. Suffering before salvation. Danger before deliverance. See that? See those hands? Look like they're in danger. They're, they're chained up. Yeah. And in the case, in this case, a nasty plight before a lot of plagues. Ten plagues, to be exact. Each of them meant to make the gods and goddesses of Egypt look small and the real God of Israel look big. First came blood and then frogs, gnats, and flies, then dead animals, and boils, and hail, and locusts, and then darkness, and finally, death. It was a hard time for the Egyptians, and a hard heart for Pharaoh. No matter how many times Moses talked to Pharaoh, and no matter how bad the next plague was, Pharaoh just wouldn't let the Israelites go. That was Pharaoh's fault, and God's plan, all at the same time. You'll see the the locust and the frog, you all see that? Yeah. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, he changed his mind one last time and chased the Israelites to the Red Sea. It looked like things were about to get a lot worse, but then they didn't. The bad things, that is, they got much better. Just when the Egyptians had the Israelites stuck between a rock and a wet place, God blew the water into two walls, and God's people walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. You see that? Yeah. True, the Egyptians followed after the Israelites to destroy them, but that was hardly a fair fight. After all, the Lord fights for his people. 
God made the Egyptians panic, made their chariots heavy, and then made the water swallow them up. The Israelites were so happy. They sang and danced and praised God for their redemption. God had answered their prayers, and the people were free at last. So before we get to all of those plagues and them crossing the Red Sea, we'll do that in the next few weeks. But today, we're going to talk about, in this sermon, we're going to talk about the last part of chapter 4, when Moses is getting ready to go back to Egypt now and try to set the Israelite people free. Does that sound like a good plan? I need more than that. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah. Okay, okay. All right, y'all go have a seat. Parents wave at them so they know where to go, right? All right. I am I'm thankful not only for God's word, but for those who put it in words that we can all understand. Uh, help us out in that. So uh, thankful again for, for this truth. And, and that is, uh, that's the story of what is to come. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert, right? Uh, we're hearing some of the, the pieces of the sermons that will come uh, shortly after. And you might be thinking, look, this author did it in just a few minutes. Why do you have to preach so long every week? Uh, but my son tells me that uh, I get paid to talk for a living, so here it is, okay? Um, yeah, let's, let's try to remember a little bit of how we got here, right? We remember uh, the, the, we go way back and the people of Israel are, are brought to Egypt really for safety. And then after years and years and years, uh, they have grown into some two million strong, most likely. And as a result, uh, the Pharaoh that was in charge at the time was uh, scared of them, didn't like uh, what, what he saw in them. And so he puts them in slavery. Uh, then he tries to kill them as children. So then Moses is put in a basket and sent down the river. He's then rescued by, by Pharaoh's daughter, actually. And so then as a result, he grows up in the, the palace, in the Pharaoh's palace, even though he's an Israelite. Then he uh, he murders somebody and flees Egypt as a result. Then he, last week, we talked about the fact that he, uh, he was at the, uh, the burning bush, right? So a couple weeks ago, he met his wife. Last week, he was at the burning bush in which the Lord was speaking to him saying, you're going to go back to the people. He's now about 80 years old at this time. You're going to go back to the people and rescue them. You know, like, hey, I've got a plan to rescue the people. And, and so Moses is excited about that. But then when he finds out that he is the, the way in which this is going to happen, he rejects it. He, he has excuse after excuse after excuse and really doesn't want to do it ultimately. But the Lord says, no, you're going to do it. And you're going to do it with your brother Aaron. You're going to go. He's going to, I'm going to speak to you. You're going to tell it to him. He's going to tell it uh, to, to Pharaoh. And this is the plan. You're going to do what I say. So you can make this hard or you can just do what I say, right? Uh, so now where we're at is that, you know, there's, there's preparation for this. All of this has been like a, a, a preparing for the delivery. But preparation needs a plan. Uh, I, I'm one of those that, um, I'm, I'm the big picture guy on staff, right? So I, I think of ideas uh, all the time. Hey, let's let's do this thing. Let's do that thing. And thankfully, there are other people on staff who help think through what does that like. How are we going to get there? Sounds great, good idea. But so there are different. 
uh, I'm not really the spreadsheet guy, but there is a spreadsheet guy. There's one spreadsheet guy who his spreadsheet seems to only have numbers on it. And there's another spreadsheet guy, and his has all the different color coding and all the different words. I'll let you figure out which one is which. Uh, they're both in this room. And one rhymes with Gino and one rhymes with Jerry. And so uh, you, can, you can figure that out, right? But, but preparation needs a plan. Like what are we going to do next? How are we going to actually carry this out? And so this is, what, this is where we're at. The burning bushes just happened. Moses is essentially uh, maybe begrudgingly agreed that he is going to carry this out. And so now we're at verse 18. All right. It says this. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that he said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that, the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. As we really, uh, as we often do, especially when it's a, uh, a narrative like this, like when it's a story, uh, it's easiest oftentimes to just follow the pattern of the story. What does the story say? So we're going to do just that. First, we see that Moses takes action. That's past tense, right? So Moses took action. He, he's going to actually start taking a step of obedience based on what has just happened at the burning bush, right? His first step is to go back to Jethro, his father-in-law. So he, Moses spoke or speaks with Jethro. He goes back to this father-in-law. And, and if you recall, I had mentioned him before uh, as well, that he was a, uh, their, their relationship was clearly one where he trusted Jethro's advice. He trusted him as a, uh, as a wise counselor. We'll see that again later in, a, in several chapters ahead. But uh, there's a couple different times, in fact, that we see this kind of wisdom. So he says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see the, whether they are still alive. 
So Jethro kind of gives him his blessing. You need to remember, uh, for the last 40 years, Moses has not just been the son-in-law who has been a husband to Zipporah. He's also been working for Jethro. He's been one of the shepherds of the sheep, right? He's been caring. So he's, he's kind of getting permission not only from his father-in-law to take his family, but also from his boss. Hey, I need to go back. I need to leave my work here. I need to leave the flock. I need to uh, kind of disappear for a while because I've got a job to do. I've got this monumental task. But I want you to notice this. This is very important. When you, when you look there in verse 18, what Moses says is, please let me go back to my brothers. See, he's acknowledging his true family. This is, this is a big deal. So when, when speaking in the last couple chapters to God, he kept talking about them and they. They won't believe me. You're sending me to them, almost like a those people. Because he's been away from them for 40 years. But it seems as though this step is a softening of Moses' heart. I need to go back to my people and rescue them. I need to go back to, they're not just those people over there that are back in the, the far country, so to speak, that I don't want to go back to. No, I, I want to go to my brothers. So Moses spoke, speaks with Jethro, and then Moses speaks with his family. There's not a whole lot of interaction in the conversation, at least in verse 20, uh, but I imagine that that conversation uh, was had, right? When it says Moses took his wife and his sons and uh, has them ride on a donkey, went back to the land of Egypt, essentially he packs them up. But if packing for Moses and Zipporah is anything like packing at my house, she packed them up. Uh, he just loaded the donkey, right? Is that how it works at your house? Anybody? Gloria packs everybody but me. She's like, I'm not, I'm not doing five kids for you. Okay, uh, so she packs everybody else, and then I put it in the car. So I just imagine that Zipporah packed all the bags, and Moses packed the donkey. Um, and, and so I, I'm not exactly sure if that's how it happened. That's just my mind. But I want you to notice, this is a unique connection that would have been caught from, the, uh, from, from those, the, the Israelite people, New Testament time. Looking back, they, they would have noticed this, so I think it's wise for you to know this. Notice the connection to the birth narrative of Jesus, right? In the birth narrative of Jesus, there's Herod, this wicked ruler, trying to kill babies. So they flee for safety, and when Herod is dead, they return to Israel, right? Here you have that there's a, another wicked ruler, and he was trying to kill babies, and they, they fled. In fact, Moses himself fled, and he returned back, but instead this time to bring rescue. In addition, just as a side note, they're riding on a donkey, <laughs> right? We see that also. But, but probably the part of this packing that I want you to notice is the most significant is that Moses took the staff of God. Previously, this was Moses' staff. It was described as the staff of Moses. 
But here, it's now the staff of God. This, this same staff that at the, uh, at the burning bush, that he throws it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And then he picks it up by the tail and it becomes the staff again. Demonstrating this is no longer just a, uh, a staff to steer the sheep. This is going to be a staff to guide a nation. There's about to be a nation being born, being delivered. This is a staff of God. This, is, this staff, as we'll see uh, in the months ahead, has a different role. It's, it's a visible picture for us and for the people of Israel even then. I, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail into verses 24 through 26 in regards to circumcision. I kind of wanted to skip this all together, but when you're preaching through a text, it's hard to skip skip over the hard parts, right? You don't just get to pass them over. But I, I want to I not go into great detail, but uh, I want you to notice this. As far as Moses knew, God was intending to end his life. I don't, we don't know what that looked like. We don't know if he was uh, sick, if it was kind of like uh, Jacob wrestling with an angel, right? Like it was, if it was that kind of scene, we don't know exactly what it was. But what we do know is that Moses is feeling some sort of pain and that God is bringing that about and that Zipporah is the one who sees the problem. Moses had done a grievous thing by not following the covenant of circumcision with his son. This may seem like no big deal to us, but it was certainly a big deal to them. And so before he like, takes his this like, final step into uh, Egypt and goes before Pharaoh, he's going to deliver the people, God is kind of making sure everything is in line. You should, be diso- I mean, you should be obedient in all ways, not just in some of your ways. I think that's a reminder to me in particular, maybe it is to you as well, that, that when we uh, are obedient to Christ, our job is to be obedient to him in all ways. We don't get to just pick which ones we like and which ones we don't like. You know, I, I like that commandment. Uh, I'm good with the one that says we're supposed to pray every day, so I'll do that one. I'm good with the one that says don't, uh, don't commit adultery. I'll, I'll do that one. But I don't really know how I feel about like, giving my money to the church. So I'm going to skip that one. I don't really know how I feel about that gluttony thing. So I'm going to not skip the buffet. Or whatever the thing is, right? So... Moses ultimately had been disobedient, and so Zipporah steps in to action to perform the circumcision because Moses had yet to follow in obedience. And, and Zipporah actually threw part of their son at Moses' feet. This is a sign intended to be a display of the blood covenant. So notice this catch this. It is the intervening of the blood of another that brings about God sparing Moses' life. In fact, she even says, you're a bridegroom to me. Church, see this parallel. We had 
another who spilled his blood on our behalf so that the that God the Father would spare our life. That, that's the picture. And even in, even in that part that seems a little grotesque and seems a little awkward to talk about, here's the reminder that someone else spilled blood so that we could have eternity with God the Father. So not only that, but we've seen in these last chapters Moses giving excuses like following God is not safe. Right? Hey, I don't want to do that because uh, I might get embarrassed. I, I've got a stammering tongue. This might be uncomfortable for me. It, it feels unsafe to go stand before Pharaoh. What if he takes me out? What if the Israelites reject me? All of these excuses that Moses comes up with. But here we see that the Lord is making it clear that disobeying God is what is not safe. That's, that's where the danger is. It doesn't mean that uh, always obedience keeps us physically safe. But it does mean going against God is always unsafe. So Moses spoke with his family. That conversation went far different than the conversation with Jethro, right? There was a lot more in that. Now he's going to speak with Aaron. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Here's what you need to catch about this. This was just like God said. You're going to go to Aaron and he's going to like, go with you. God said it and it was so. This is a God doing what God does. So the next verses, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Right? You, you remember back last week when Moses is finally at his kind of wits end. I've tried all of the different things. I've given you all the different excuses. And so now I'm just saying, will you please send somebody else? And so the Lord, in his anger, says, yes, I will, but you're not off the hook. You're still going. Aaron's going to go with you. So now it's actually taking place. Moses and Aaron are going together. So we see all of that, all of that conversation, but also mixed into this part of the story is, is not only did Moses take action, but the Lord reveals his plan. He begins to share a little bit more about what is going to take place. And one of the most difficult things for us to grasp is that in this story, the Lord is declaring that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Look at verse 21. It says, And the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In this moment, it's like uh, the, the good news is this. It's like the Lord is saying, Pharaoh, you will kill my sons no more. 
you will enslave my people no more. The Lord is taking his stand. You can kind of imagine, like, uh, just this, uh, just the intensity that the Lord brings. You might be asking, like, why, why, would, why would he harden Pharaoh's heart, though? Well, wouldn't he just soften Pharaoh's heart, go the opposite direction, and bring this about? Hey, like, if the Lord can harden it, surely he can soften it. We get an answer for that in Romans chapter 9, right? For Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, there's a greater purpose here. There's, there's something bigger at stake here. It's the very name, the one that we just said is worthy of it all, the one that, like, this, you are worthy of your name. What is, what's so great about the name Jesus? It means the Lord saves. That's why he's worthy of his name, because the Lord did save. So, yes, Jesus is worthy of our praise. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of our, of our adoration. He's worthy of us singing. He's worthy of our obedience, because there's a greater purpose here. So, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is in some way supposed to be pointing others to this worthy Christ, this worthy Jesus. See, however, I guess all of those who have not had their heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh have a hard heart toward God. That, that's, that's all of us before Christ. That's, that's all of our story. And when God does what God does and displays his power and might, it simply makes the hard heart harder, says Romans 1. Right? And if nothing else, he's, he's going to show his power and Pharaoh's going to get harder at heart, not softer. See, that's the natural, not the supernatural. That's the natural response with a hard heart, it's to harden it even more. It's not, it's, it's only at the, the spirit softening the heart that works. Have you ever had those conversations where you feel like you're, you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and you feel like you're beating your head against a brick wall? Right? That's why. It's actually hard. And, and there's just more to it. So not only will the Lord harden Pharaoh, but the Lord is going to punish Egypt. So verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That seems like such an intense punishment, right? This is not just a, a slap on the wrist. This is ending the life for a seemingly innocent child who has done seemingly nothing wrong. Why does Pharaoh's son have to take the punishment for Pharaoh? I mean, let's just ask that question. Why would God? He just says, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Why would God kill someone? Maybe you're in the room today and you, you've never heard this story. You don't know much about this God and you're thinking, I don't know that I want to know that one. 
He's going to kill a child? Why? Here's what I, I need you to hear. The sin of rejecting God is far more extreme than we often think it is. Disobeying, disregarding God's law is far more intense than most of us regularly consider. I, can I just acknowledge that um, that I'm, I'm like the first to forget that? I don't, I don't, I don't think that it's super common in my life that I have this like very premeditated sins, right? I really ponder, should I, shouldn't I? And they, I, I'm going to go the sin route. But when I choose to sin, I'm still choosing to sin. And in that moment, I'm forgetting that going against God is as grievous as it is. I'm so quick to ignore the reality of what I'm doing when I choose to go my own way. Oh, church, that we may not be this way. May I, and may, may we as a church, be a people who are slow to reject God's way and quick to confess when we do go our own Lest you think this kind of intense punishment is only found in the Old Testament, that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, consider people like Ananias and Sapphira, who on what seemed like a modest lie are immediately struck down dead. I think of like in the uh, book of Revelation, seven bowls of wrath that get poured out. More specifically, consider the cup of wrath that was poured out to another son. He was not just seemingly innocent. He was actually innocent. This punishment certainly did not fit any of his crimes, but it's perfectly suitable for your crimes, for my crimes. The, the death of crucifixion is the most gruesome death known to man. And it's what you deserved. It's what I deserved. Jesus took our place as the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Big words, substitutionary atonement, meaning he stepped in and replaced us for our punishment. He died so that we don't have to. Do you see why we're studying Exodus? It's pointing to how much we need this God. We need this kind of rescue in our life. We need this kind of salvation. We need this kind of deliverance. This is what we need. 
Not just what the Israelites needed out of slavery, out of bondage, out of, out of having to, to work, that, that kind of gruesome, painful work. Not just kind of uh, to get into another place. No, no. Like, we need eternal freedom. We need everlasting life. We need deliverance from our sin today. So when the Israelites hear of this, they respond. Like, I want you to imagine, because you are, you're hearing this good news right now, right? So you just heard this good news, that there is rescue here. There's a, a rescue plan. And, and by the way, Israelites, be ready. Like, it's coming your way. We are here now. The rescue isn't someday, one time. It's here now. This is what Moses is saying. It, I'm here. Like God has sent me. This is what Jesus is saying to you, that God sent Jesus for you, that on this day you can be rescued. So, so when you hear that, the Israelites, they responded. They hear from Moses and Aaron, and it seems like they're pretty delighted. There are smiles all across the room. Like this is the audience participation, when all of you smile across the room, right? This is what you should be doing. Like this is the rescue for you. This is the rescue for us. So what do they do? Verse 31, the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. That means that they had cared for the people of Israel, that he seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. They believed. The people believed. Step one, believe. You see, they knew now what we heard recently, that God heard them, that God remembered his covenant with them, that God saw them, even in their darkest, deepest moment where they felt like nobody was around, God saw them and God knew. God knew them. He knew before they even whimpered, before one tear fell from their face, God knew their plight. God knew their sorrow. God knew their grief. God knew all of their hardship. And God says, I know. So now they believed. He did hear us. He did see us. He does know our grief, our sorrow, our pain. He does actually know. So surely, like, I will believe. And so I'm asking you, do you believe? Sarah told us this morning, she believes have you ever said, I, I, I trust in Jesus this way? I believe that he's the rescue plan. I believe that this is it. This is not just having a knowledge of what God has done. Yes, God did this cool thing for the Israelites. I believe that. Or, or yes, that Jesus died on a cross. Okay. But instead, a belief that has brought you to the point of surrender. This kind of belief is, is significant. John Piper said it this way, you can get, you can read theology 10 hours a day, 40 years long, and not know God as beautiful, as all-satisfying, the highest treasure of life. He says, who cares about knowing God the way the devil knows God? The devil hates everybody. <laughs> Knowledge of God helps him hate people. We're talking about knowing God, knowing God, that he is infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, infinitely satisfying. He's the very reason your soul was made. Do you know Jesus this way? 
Do you know Jesus is the one that you say, you are Lord. It means I'm turning away from all the stuff that I've been trying, all the ways I've been trying to get out of this slavery that I'm in. I'm trying to get out of the bondage that I'm in. I'm working, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm putting up all of the different walls. I'm trying all the different things. I'm praying harder. I'm going to church more. I'm reading my Bible more. I'm doing more and more and more. When Jesus just says, no, just, just trust me. I'm, I'm the rescue plan. So we turn away from the good stuff that we're trying and the bad stuff that we shouldn't be doing. We, we turn away from all of that and we trust in Jesus. I say, I want to follow after you. I want to obey whatever your plan is. I want to surrender to your way. And even when that way looks totally different than what everybody else around me is doing. When your way is confusing to me, I still want to follow your way. When your way, it doesn't, doesn't always make sense in my finite, not God-like mind, I want to trust you instead. I'm going to, I'm going to trust your way. This is what repentance and belief looks like, turning and, and trusting. You see, the people believed, and the people worshiped people worshiped. What is their response, right? Verse 31, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Why? Because they knew salvation was here. So here's the question for you. If you are a follower of Christ, whether that has been something that's happened in your life years ago, or that is something that's happened right now. Salvation is here. Your response should be praise, adoration. It, it should exude from you in, in all of the ways. You should celebrate. There, there should be clapping. There should be singing. There should be, like, your whole life should reflect that you have been saved from hell. Everything in you should look like this is joy, personal, like I'm, I'm I, I just, I can't help it. This is too great. Like hands should be lifted. Voices should be raised. All of these things should happen. Why? Because the salvation came to you. Yeah, we look at this story and we think about all of the, the different pieces and parts of Moses talking to Zipporah, and Moses talking to Jethro and seeing his brothers and saying, I want to go to those, my people, I want to get to them. And so we unpack that and we can unpack the parts of even the, the kind of gruesome parts of circumcision. We can, we can talk about how, uh, what, what the plan was and how Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened. But here's the, here's the point of it all, that salvation came. Church, salvation came for you. And again, if you don't know this Jesus, if you're just in this room today and you've been in this room for weeks and weeks and weeks or this is your very first time, I want you to hear salvation came that you might know the Lord of all creation. So turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And if there's something in that that seems confusing to you or seems like I, 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 need, I have more questions about that or I'm, I don't understand, Paul, but I, I, I do feel feel, sense that I need to be trusting in Jesus this way. In just a moment, when we stand uh, right here to my left, there's going to be people that would love to talk to you. They'd love to pray with you, answer questions, point you to other parts of Scripture to help answer those questions. 
salvation is here. And for those of us who are, are rescued, we should be giving never stopping, never ceasing, never failing, unending praise. So my request is that, that as we stand together today, we would find ourselves giving God the glory that he most richly deserves. So would you stand with me as we respond to the King?